Okay, so last week we looked at the three marks of an authentic New Testament church. And those were orthodoxy, order, and ordinances. And we talked about all those things in one sermon. I, looking back, we should have probably done at least three sermons, if not 30 sermons on those topics. But we, we covered it all last week. This week we're going to look at the three works of an authentic New Testament church. And then next week we're going to close out our mini-series with kind of a uh, a deeper dive into the purpose and importance of church membership. Why is church membership important? I realize our culture uh, is not encouraging us uh, to, to, to do such things as become official members of a church, but I'll hopefully give you a good argument as to why that's important next week. And uh, as I said, we could have spent a lot more weeks on these topics. I'll just be honest with you. It's Trying to prepare for these and fit them into single sermons has been difficult. It's been a challenge. So we could have spent a lot more time, but I was actually encouraged. Somebody, I forget who said it, said, but you know, Ben, we're about to start the book of Acts. Maybe that was Amanda. I I don't remember, but it's like we're going to cover so many of these same topics and themes when we get into the book of Acts over the next uh, two semesters. So that was kind of a relief. We're going to see this stuff again. Um, And actually, speaking of themes, just to kind of get things kicked off, uh, Speaking of themes that show up in the book of Acts, I've been thinking a lot about baptism. Y'all probably saw the the video I sent out on the Wayside Weekly talking a little bit about the ordinances, uh, and then the sermon from last Sunday talking a lot about the ordinances. But I've been thinking a lot about water baptism and and the best way in particular to prepare children for baptism. How do we know when when a child is ready to receive water baptism uh, and, and does that matter even, right? Um, and so I've been really wrestling around with this, this preparatory kind of pre-baptism instruction. And the word, the technical word that you'll hear in church circles and throughout church history is catechesis. Catechesis is the process of instructing someone in the Christian faith. And the word for that instruction is catechism. So you may have heard this word before, but a catechism is usually in the form of question and answer, and it's to indoctrinate someone, to, to uh, instruct someone as to the Christian faith, the basics of the Christian faith, the orthodoxy that we talked about last week. And in 1647, over 100 years after the Reformation had begun, a bunch of church leaders from Scotland and England got together uh, in Westminster, I believe, because they produced a document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They did a, large, a larger catechism, but the shorter catechism that was produced out of that time together in 1647 was meant to focus on preparing children uh, in particular. And it was a question and answer format. So they asked a question and then the, the child was to kind of learn the answer and, and understand how that fits in the Christian faith. And the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is by far the most famous. And if you've ever read like John Piper and some other authors, you've, you've heard it a million times probably. But it goes like this. The very first question they would ask to the children going through a catechesis process was, what is the chief end of man? What is the main goal for which we were created as human beings, in other words? And the answer that these children of all different ages learned was this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What a beautiful, succinct statement of the purpose of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And this question was meant to help children understand their purpose. 
Even in the mid-1600s, children were growing up struggling with what is my purpose as a, as a human being? Why was I created? For what purpose? And this was to help them understand that. And the truth is, if we get that first question wrong, then we will struggle to understand what life is really all about. Guys, if we don't fill in that first answer with the right answer, we're going to end up diverging from God's intention for our lives, both as individuals and corporately. We're either going to spend all of our time, if we cram something else into that answer space, we're going to spend all our time uh, trying to achieve the wrong ends in life, We're going to be living for the wrong purposes or we're going to go about trying to achieve the right ends with the wrong reasons or the wrong motives underlying them. And either way, we're not going to be glorifying God as we ought to. But by understanding and embracing our God-given purpose, guys, we're going to have a clear path forward. I promise you this. If If we can embrace that purpose, we're going to have a clear path forward. The big idea for today is this, that as Christians... We have been called by God to glorify God through certain works in this life. And so now we need to lean into those works, trusting that God will provide us with the power. He will empower us to be successful at that, to accomplish these works for his glory and ultimately for our good as well. And there's different ways to articulate the works of the church, uh, which, which bring glory to God. You know... People have ever been into like the purpose-driven church, you know, worship, connect, grow, serve, share. There's all these kind of formulas that people have kicked around to do this. And and so this isn't like the end-all, be-all categorization. But I am using a three-fold approach developed, again, by the professor that I had in seminary that taught my class on the church. And I think it's really helpful. And plus, it's alliterative, so it's easier to remember. And so these three works of the church that, that we are to engage in by the power of the Holy Spirit for God's glory are these, evangelism, edification, and exaltation. So the first God-glorifying work of a local church is evangelism. That's where we start with our God-glorifying works. And guys, evangelism comes from a Greek word, word that simply means sharing a good message. So in a Christian context, that good message is, of course, the good news of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ in his first and second coming, what we call the gospel. And so this first work is focused not inside the church, but this first work of evangelism is focused outside to the world. Our focus is to be to the unsaved people around us who have not found hope yet in Christ. That's who is in our focus for this first God-glorifying work. And it begins with an invitation to trust Christ, and it ends with an initiation into the body of Christ through spirit baptism and water baptism. And if you heard my video, uh, we're we're here at Wayside, we're kind of looking into that topic of the initiatory rite of water baptism. But either way, what do you want when you share the gospel with people? You want them to get baptized and publicly proclaim their faith in Christ, right? And so it begins with an invitation to trust Christ, and it ends with a public proclamation that I have trusted in Christ. And in our Wayside Constitution, we actually include this work as part of our purpose statement. It's on page one, article one. It says, the purpose of this body of believers is to glorify God in living like Jesus as we collaborate with each other and with other Christians and Christian churches, both locally and globally, to accomplish God's purposes, especially the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And guys, the Great Commission... Uh, which we see explicitly in in, in Matthew's gospel. I want to look at that. 
the passage in Matthew where we get the Great Commission from is one of the most important prescriptions for the church. What I mean by prescriptions is this isn't optional. Jesus is not saying, you know, if you get around to it, you should tell some people about Jesus. This is prescriptive. It's what we, are, it's what we ought to be doing, okay? And so look at Matthew twenty-eight nineteen with me. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the first thing to note here is that this great commission is not given to a handful of people. It's not given to some experts out in the field of evangelism or some full-time, you know, foreign missionaries. It's given to the church as a whole. If we miss that, we're going to misapply this, this great commission. It's given to the church as a whole. Jesus is calling all of us as members of his body to, to work together in this endeavor. And, and ultimately, and I wish I, I had included the previous verse and the following verse, but that's where right before and after he gives this commission, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, i.e., you're going to go out and do this based on my authority. Guys, this isn't just a good idea we came up with. This isn't just us going, well, I really think. This is us pointing and saying, this is God's plan for the redemption of mankind. And then he, he finishes it, you know, if, in the next verse by saying, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the age. And Christ is present with his church through our, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Um, absolutely, that's true. So, uh, the first thing is to note that this is given to the whole church, and we miss that sometimes. And then I want to point out that there's two basic strategies for evangelism, and we even see this in the pages of the New Testament. Two basic strategies. We, and we should be both, okay? This is not an, an optional, like, I'll take option B, you know? Uh, this is both and, okay? So the first thing is that we need to be passive evangelists. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by passive evangelists? I mean that we are supposed to live our lives in a Christ-like way and make the most of every opportunity that comes along our path, as, as Peter puts it, and I've got it up on the slides, 1 Peter 3.15, to do what? To give a response to anyone who inquires about the hope that we have in Christ. We should be living our lives in such a way that it draws people like moths to a, a, a light bulb to say, what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your life, in your family, in y'all's church that makes you different, distinct, set apart, full of peace and joy, and, and you're able to reconcile in conflicts, and you're able to, and on and on and on. And then that's called passive evangelism. And then they come and, and we are prepared to give them the reason why we're like that, to give them the reason we're hopeful. And that is Christ, that is the gospel. So we need to be passive evangelists, and we should also be active evangelists, actively engaging in planned evangelistic activities, either individually and corporately. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go downtown to 6th Street, you know, and, and you know, yell at the, at the mobs of people on a Friday night. I mean, some people are called to that. Uh, I was approached on 6th Street when I was 14 by a guy who told me that I needed Jesus, and I spent about 30 minutes telling him, how much I could care less about what he had to say about anything, uh, you know. And so that wasn't effective for me, but people have come to faith in Christ through street preaching, and I think it's great, street evangelism. 
Um, maybe that's not what God's calling you to. But we need, regardless of what it is, we need to see ourselves as active evangelists who are actively engaging in planned evangelistic activities, either by ourselves, as a family, maybe with our neighbors, or as a church as a whole. I was joking with somebody the other day that I want to go to Comic-Cons and, uh, and set up a booth. Well, I won't get into that. Unless you're a total comic book nerd, you're not going to appreciate the, the, the evangelistic approach that I would take at a Comic-Con booth. But the point is, we need to be thinking about this stuff and praying about it, okay? Enough said. Part of my job, part of the job of leadership in the church with the women's discipleship team and our elder team and, and others, uh, including what Abby's doing with our, young, uh, our older girls and what Ashley and the teachers are doing with their younger kids, part of our job is to help train the people of God for this work, the members of the body of Christ for both passive and active evangelism. It's to help you understand. Listen to this. Just, just, just imagine this. It's to help you understand that God has sovereignly placed people along your path, in your life, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your extended family, and he has prepared their hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel. There is no difference between the people that God has placed in your life and prepared their hearts to receive the gospel than the woman at the well that we read about in John's gospel, than the, than the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about in the book of Acts. He does this. He puts people in our lives and he prepares their heart. He prepares their life to receive that truth. Not everybody, but some people. And we need to be thinking and praying about that. All right. So God is glorified when his people are simultaneously prepared for opportunities for evangelism that he gives us and when we are working together to deliberately engage in evangelistic activity, in active evangelism. Um, next year, God willing, and I am looking so forward to this, my older brother Andrew and his family are going to move back to Austin. Amen, Dad? Yeah. Dad's excited because he's going to move in with them. And so they're looking for a place, and they want to live together and just really enjoy Dad because they've been living in Philadelphia for years now. And so God willing, they're going to come down here next year. And while I was the son that ended up church planting, my brother is a school planter. So he plants these, these micro schools, and most of, of his experience has been with Liberian refugee families in Philadelphia. And so recently he started a high school for some Liberian refugee kids. He's worked at a, uh, but it's, it's classical Christian education model micro schools, mostly working with the families of refugees and asylum seekers. And so when I found out they're coming down here, we just started talking about it. And it, in fact, last time he was down here, he came to our Thursday morning group. And lo and behold, Timon was meeting with Alliance, uh, and, and they walked up. And so my brother got to meet Alliance, and he's like, man, tell me about yourself. And Alliance was telling about his ministry to refugees and asylees. And so my brother and I started talking about, like, why, why wouldn't we create schools, Christian classical micro schools, for the children of, of the families of refugees and asylum seekers and provide them with another option beyond just the local public school in their neighborhood, which a lot of times aren't that great, but that's their only option. They, they, they're under-resourced. They can't just go find a good private school or something like that. And so I'm excited. And, and, and having him lean into that and then seeing how we can come alongside him in that as a church in, in Greater Austin, I think is exciting. And, and many of these folks are, are offended by public education. They come from traditional societies, traditional cultures, Muslim background, Christian background. They come from Africa. They come from the Middle East. They come from all over the place. But a lot of the times what they get in those public schools is offensive uh, to their way of life, to their traditional cultures. And so providing them with uh, 
a good private school Christian education that aligns, even if they're Muslim background, it doesn't matter, that aligns more closely with their values uh, of, of theism, for instance, uh, that's a good thing. And so, you know, ultimately, would we like to see them come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior? Yes. Is this a bait and switch? No. We would say, hey, we have a classical Christian education. We'd like to sponsor scholarships through our local churches to help support your kids to get an education, a classical Christian education. And then that gives us a chance to love on their families, not just dropping off furniture once in a while, but actually to lean in and get to know them and love on them and invite them over for dinner and go over to their place for dinner. But it provides us kind of a context for uh, loving on them, whether they ever come to faith in Christ or not, but also an opportunity to share the gospel. And, and share the hope that we have in Christ. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, as a church, we need, here's my point, we need to be entrepreneurial. We have one of the most incredible church bodies when it comes to entrepreneurialism. We have some of the greatest minds that just see things from different angles and different perspectives. And we use this in the business world. And I'm saying, let's use this in the church. Let's use this to come up with new and novel and innovative ways to, to reach people and share the gospel with them. And that, to me, is really exciting that we can do that as a church. And who knows how God might be planning to use ideas like school planting uh, to reach entire populations of people from all over the globe who God has sovereignly placed on our doorstep in greater Austin so that we can share the hope that we have in Christ with them. We need to be thinking about this. God is glorified when we work together, not just in our church, but in the church, when we work together to actively engage in evangelism, trusting in the reality and the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord and trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the boldness to share our faith and to be working in the hearts of the people that we're speaking to and loving on. And in order to engage in the work of evangelism, we, we have to first realize that this is something the entire church has been tasked with. All right? If you are a Christian, you have been tasked with this work of evangelism, and we need to get that. It's not just for the professionals. This is something we're all expected and empowered to lean into in this life. And guys, I understand it's totally uncomfortable. Like, I get it. I grew up in this world as well, okay? So I grew up, you know, religion, that's a private thing, you know. Religion and politics, don't talk about those things. That's, you know. But people are dying to hear where we derive our hope from, who we derive our hope from. And if we just say, oh, religion's a private thing, and that's just left to the professionals, the street preachers and the foreign missionaries and all these people, we're going to miss opportunities. Okay? One of my seminary professors put it like this. He said, evangelism is not only the work of the gifted and trained evangelist, quote-unquote, or the elders of the church. Evangelism is the work of every believer. Each of us has a sphere of influence among unsaved family members, friends, co-workers, and acquaintances that we meet regularly. In fact, church members, get this, church members have more contact with unsaved people than full-time church workers. Remember, the role of the leadership of the church, he writes, is not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of service. So if you're a believer, you're an evangelist. So start thinking out of the box in terms of who God has placed along your path and how you can help them find hope in Christ. 
So the Great Commission begins with evangelism leading to baptism, and then it transitions to our next work. The second God-glorifying work of a local church is edification. That's just a, it's an E word, first of all. So that's why it fits in the, in the uh, alliteration. But edification, to edify, it just means to build up. It means building up believers in their faith, providing them with a solid foundation and then building on that foundation, as Paul talks about in the New Testament in his letters. And I like how Paul articulates this in Ephesians 4. Listen to this. Ephesians 4 says, And he, that is Jesus, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, the equipping of the saints, that's all of us, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's spiritual maturity, guys. And that is a lifelong process in this church age. So after evangelism leading to baptism, this is the next step in fulfilling the Great Commission, teaching these new disciples to do what? To observe all that Jesus commanded. And this is also reflected in our church's purpose statement. I'll just read it. It says the purpose of this body of believers is to glorify God. And then again, it says how? In learning from Jesus by reading, studying, and meditating upon God's word in order that we would increasingly become like him through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to talk about this in your discussion groups, but if I could go back and rewrite that, it assumes that it's a corporate endeavor. It assumes that it's us doing this together and refining each other, not an individualistic thing. But you can read that and go, oh, so that's just me and my Bible and the Holy Spirit? No, this is a communal activity, this edification. It has to be. This learning process is a group project, not just an individual endeavor. Every local church must organize itself for the task of discipleship to train disciples for the work of ministry. We have to organize ourselves. That's why we need church order, for instance. That's why we need structures in place to help do this, help accomplish this. And the job of equipping is given to leaders in the church. That's what Paul's saying here. But the work of the ministry is given to all of us as disciples of Jesus, okay? So as we organize for discipleship, we have to realize that every local church is a unique mixture of gifted individuals. Guys, this is why the McDonald's franchise model of church planning cannot work. And we all admit that it can't work cross-culturally. All right? We can't plant a wayside like we have right now in Uganda. Okay, that's not going to apply. Or in China or somewhere else. Okay, that's not going to apply. But it, it's also true in Greater Austin. If we were to start a congregation of Wayside on North Lamar and Breaker, it would necessarily look different than here because it, it would necessarily have different people, different members of the body that are gifted differently and can play different roles in this process of building up the body and being equipped for the ministry. And so we have to be careful about the cut and paste mentality. Certain things should be cut and pasted, like orthodox doctrine, for instance. But then when it comes to how we structure this, we need to understand that every local church is a unique mixture of gifted individuals. And part of the work of edification is figuring out how to organize ourselves in such a way that makes use of our individual strengths and compensates for our individual weaknesses. I would say raise your hand if you have individual strengths. The fact is everyone would be raising their hand. Even if you self-denigrate, right? If you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit is indwelling you and is gifting you for service in the body of Christ. 
And then I would say, who has individual weaknesses, right? And if you didn't raise your hand, we got problems because all of us have blind spots. All of us have weaknesses. All of us have things we're not good at. And if we don't get real honest about how we're gifted and where our strengths lie and how we're weak and how we need to rely and interdepend on others in the body of Christ, then this whole edification endeavor is not going to work out very well. But if we, here, I will say this, if we leave the work of ministry up to a few paid professionals, if we just get more and more tithes or offerings over time and a bigger budget and start just hiring more people out of seminary or something like that, then guys, we're not going to grow as we ought to. Like we, we, all of us, I would come sit with you and tell myself this, we need to be about the work of the ministry together. All right? There's not a clergy-laity dichotomy. That's nonsense, at least according to Scripture, okay? Okay, all right, that was my soapbox. So having said that, we do need disciple makers who teach and model Christ-likeness. All right, if we're all immature at the same time, we're going to be like the blind leading the blind. But as we grow and mature in our faith, we ought to become disciple makers. We need disciple makers in the church. I need every one of you to see yourself on a trajectory to becoming a disciple maker. You might not be ready to do that right now, but I want you to see yourself on that trajectory. Don't just look at like the spiritual gifts in Galatians 5 and the qualifications for leadership in the church in 1 Timothy 3 and go, I'm so glad there's some people on that trajectory of, of becoming disciple makers because that's not for me. I'm just a lay person. Like, no, that's not, that's totally unbiblical. Let's get rid of that thought, all right? But the whole point of edification in the church is that every immature disciple, every new believer, every time one of these kids puts their faith in Jesus Christ, that we are intentionally building them up to themselves become disciple makers, to disciple the next generation of Christians, and on and on and on throughout history. And that's how this thing called the church works. That's how Jesus set it up to work. In order to glorify God through the work of edification, we must equip all the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, The work of edification necessarily requires a knowledge of people. Now, what's my point here? All right. This idea of impersonal edification, you know, that you're just going to get on YouTube and watch a lot of videos and be built up for the body. Like, I'm not saying there's not good resources and good information out there, but if that is an impersonal process that's not happening in the context of community that knows you and loves you and knows your strength and knows your weaknesses and knows your sin struggles and knows your life experiences and knows your, 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 your uh, hang-ups and your spiritual gifts and, and your relationships and which ones are in conflict and, and why. And Do you see why it's so important that we're in a relational community context for this process of growth? Because we need people that know us, Right? And, and technology doesn't necessarily help us in this. If anything, it gives us the ability to go home by ourselves in our room and get on our computer and watch a bunch of YouTube videos and, and try and grow and develop in that context. And that's not going to happen like it ought to. These days, there, there are, listen to this. I'll tell you this because you probably don't scroll through these websites, but I do because I preach. There are entire websites that are, that are set up so that preachers who are busy and burn out could just go in on Saturday night, find a sermon, cut and paste it onto a Word document, print it out, come up and preach it the next morning to a church. And maybe the church is so big that they don't even have any idea who the people in the audience are for that one of seven services that they're preaching it to. And the, the other campuses that are watching it on video. Like, what are the chances that they're going to be able to speak into the lives of these individuals? Now, I'm not beating up on megachurches, 
But every megachurch pastor I've talked to, every large church pastor I've talked to recognizes that this is an issue. And they recognize that you have to offset that somehow with pastoral ministry and leadership in those different smaller communities or else this is not going to work, okay? Um, But what, what would that do? So from a pragmatic, if you're just purely pragmatic and you're like, Ben, why do you spend so much time getting these sermons ready? Why don't you just go on and download something from Sermon Central or whatever, okay? I mean, that makes sense. It's pragmatic. It seems logical. Just use someone else's sermon. Don't spend dozens of hours researching and writing something unique. But the short answer to that is that it's important for a preacher to put together a sermon with the needs of the people in mind. Like a shepherd who discounts who the sheep are in the flock is not worth their salt as a shepherd. All right? So we have to put these lessons and sermons and discipleship materials together with our people in mind. You can't just abstract it and make it generalized. And this is just one example of why it's important that we all together lean into the work of edification within our own local church congregations. And although it sometimes makes sense to borrow discipleship materials, I love the Navigator's discipleship materials, the 2-7 series. I've walked through that with some of y'all. Is it okay to borrow some? Yes. But we're actually meeting face-to-face at Rudy's, talking about it and sharing prayer requests and working through it. And that's super important, Okay. Um, The local church is where Jesus expects people to grow up in their faith. And that's one of the things I'm going to talk about next week in church membership. That's why it's so important to have a a commitment to a local church body. Or else you're just not going to grow the way Christ would have it. So God is glorified as we grow together in Christ-likeness. And I was talking to Amanda the other day about how to best disciple our people. Um, And we were talking about the benefits of tailoring certain Uh, equipping opportunities for different people depending on where they are in life. Because guys, we're not all in the same place in life, okay? We don't all just fit this like little cookie cutter mold of of what our life looks like and our life experiences and and, and our, our demographics and all these things, okay? So how can we do a better job of tailoring certain equipping opportunities? So for instance, equipping a group of parents so that they can better disciple kids of a certain age, right? A two-year-old and a 12-year-old are very different, right? So what if you got all the parents of the 11 and 12-year-olds together, maybe even the 11 and 12-year-old girls together, and, and, and came at this from that perspective, saying, how can we uniquely pour into these girls and these parents of these girls to help them grow and help them help their kids grow? Um, that's just an example of how that might work. Or if you've been through grief. I mean, not everybody has had an incredibly traumatic event in their life or, or something that's caused a, a tremendous amount of grief. But some of us have. And, and how can we come together with that trauma and that grief and, and help each other? And, and then be prepared to help others down the road that are going to experience trauma and grief and how to walk through that in a biblical, Christ-honoring way. That's what I'm talking about. But again, this means that we need to know where people are. Uh, I have a pastor friend who's got a church in South Austin and one of the things they do at that church is they do an annual pastoral checkup. I mean, they literally have everyone in their church who's a member of their church do this checkup. I think it starts with like a, like a survey thing, but then they actually sit down face-to-face with one of the pastoral leaders and they talk about, hey, how'd you grow last year? What were some of the things that caused growth in your life? What are you struggling with right now? What, what do you need? How can we help you? How can we equip you? Um, They talk about how are you gifted? Like, how do you see God using your strengths? Where are you weak? How do you need us to come alongside you to shore up your weaknesses? 
And what a beautiful process. They do that once a year in the spring. I think that's so cool. And we're looking at doing something similar here at Wayside, just, just to be as effective as we possibly can be at building up this particular body of believers as Christ would have us. So the Great Commission gives us our first two works, evangelism leading to baptism and edification leading to spiritual maturity. So the third God-glorifying work of a local church, guys, is exaltation. What is exaltation? To exalt God is is what we mean when we talk about worship. To, To give God His due glory. To exalt to, to, to praise Him, to point out His majesty and all His incredible um, attributes. And, and so that's what we're talking about when we talk about worship. And guys, I get it. Like we, we tend to talk about worship in particular contexts, so we end up with this idea that worship is just what happens in this gathered church body, in a Sunday morning service, particularly when we're taking communion or really when we're singing praise and worship songs. And that's really what that's really where exaltation and worship happens. Guys, can, can worship happen when we're singing along with Kevin and, and the folks up front? Yes, we hope it does. But can you be singing along with Kevin and the folks up front and not be worshiping? Yes, that's exactly right. If your heart's not in the right place, then we can just, I mean, we can move our lips all day long, but if it's not something happening in our heart. We touch on this um, this, this exaltation in two sections of our purpose statement. This is how it reads in our Constitution. It says, The purpose of this body of believers is to glorify God in loving Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and joyfully submitting to His authority and to those leaders to whom He has delegated authority in His church. That's the under-shepherds we talked about last week. And in loving one another in the church living in biblical community as we regularly meet together for corporate worship and fellowship, joyfully sacrificing for the benefit of one another. Now listen, you might hear that, and the only thing that puts up the antenna on worship is regularly gathering together for corporate worship. But I'll tell you this, every phrase of what I just read can be an act and should be an act of exaltation. So loving Jesus, joyfully submitting to his authority, loving one another, living together in biblical community and fellowship, and joyfully sacrificing for the benefit of one another, all those guys are acts of worship, or they ought to be. And as a church, we are called to worship God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we exalt God, through his Son, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and by the power of his Holy Spirit who empowers us for worship. As weird as that sounds, that's true. The Holy Spirit empowers us to worship God rightly. And we do this in corporate worship settings as we praise God, sing songs, respond to God's word, receive communion and pray together. But we also exalt God as we live God-glorifying lives in the highways and byways of life in greater Austin and beyond. And Jesus spoke of how the way that we love others out there, not when we're the church gathered, but when we're the church scattered, The way we love others out there leads to God being glorified. It leads to worship and exaltation of God. And how do I know that? Because Jesus said that. Look at Matthew 5.16. It said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? The good works that we're being equipped to do out there in the world and in the church lead others to glorify God. And that's beautiful. 
The work of exaltation happens both when we are gathered as a church and when we are scattered throughout the week. And please hang on to that. Corporate worship is not just for a worship service on Sunday morning for an hour and a half. In fact, guys, if we're not bringing a worshipful heart from the previous week into our worship service, it's not fair to put the responsibility on me or Kevin or Lindsay or whoever's leading worship or preaching. It's not fair to put the responsibility on us to go from zero to 100 miles an hour in terms of the way your heart is geared towards God. Does that make sense? So if you're not worshipful all throughout the week, and then you, you rush up to church service on Sunday, and it's like, I hope that this you know, sermon and these songs resonate and make me feel worshipful. I guarantee you, you're going to be let down. Because we have to, we, when we're gathered, we're bringing in the worship of having been scattered for a week, and we're, we're, we're glorifying God together out of that feeling, that heart of worship. And that's an important thing to understand. It's an important thing to teach our kids that too. Paul teaches us that almost anything we can do can be done as a work of exaltation. You guys know this verse, if you've been around the church at all. 1 Corinthians 10.31. He says, whether then you eat or drink, and I love that he includes this next part, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now to me, that's amazing to think that everything we do in this life even the most seemingly mundane details of life can be done for God's glory. Man, if that doesn't make your heart glad, like I don't know what is. You can create a spreadsheet for God's glory. Do you believe that? Think about it. You can change a diaper for God's glory. You can do the dishes for God's glory. You can walk the dog for God's glory. You can have a barbecue cookout for God's glory. Anything we do can be done for the glory of God. So do you ever struggle to find purpose in what you're doing? I mean, Stacey and I have talked about this. In parenting, there's a lot of times where you're finding yourself doing this repetitive, mundane thing. Oh, the bottles are all dirty again. I got to clean the bottles, you know? You can clean the bottles for the glory of God. No joke. Oh, man, another dirty diaper. I got to change another dirty diaper. I got to wake up in the middle of the night to help my crying baby and, and walk around the house at two in the morning. But, you know, and it's not just parenting. It's whatever job you have, that whatever that thing is, taking flights to go out of town to do work, you can go take a flight on American Airlines for the glory of God. But it's going to take us submitting our lives whole hog. I mean, taking all of it and putting it on the altar for God to make use of. All right. And I want to encourage you this morning with that. As long as what you're doing isn't done in disobedience to God or His Word or in violation of God's will, then it can be done for God's glory. As an act of faith, commit your works to the Lord. I don't know what those works are, but God has works for you to do that He's had ready for you to do since before He created the universe. And He wants you to wade into that. He wants me to as well. And you will never run short of purpose in this life, I promise you, if you can just hand everything over to God. He will infuse purpose into even the most mundane aspects of your life, the slog of life. He will infuse purpose and meaning into it if you do it for His glory. All right, every facet of your life, every facet of our life together as a church can be transformed into a work of exaltation. So I want to close here. As we consider these three God-glorifying works of evangelism, edification, and exaltation, 
as we consider these three works of the local church, you know, you might think of other works. You know, you might think of fellowship. Why wasn't fellowship in there? Well, let me tell you, I tend to see the content of our fellowship as these, these three works that we do together as a community. When we do evangelism and edification and exaltation together as a community, I don't know of a richer form of fellowship in the local church. We might not have a fellowship hall where we have donuts and coffee, necessarily, like some churches do, but fellowship's going to happen if we lean into these works together. I promise you that. So loving Jesus, joyfully submitting, all these things we can do, and that's fellowship. It's also worship. And others might split out prayer. And I want to end with this because I think this is so important. You might be saying like, Ben, where's prayer in this list? And I would come back and say prayer is everywhere in this list. Prayer saturates these three works of the church. And if it doesn't, we won't do them, frankly. So we prayerfully depend on God for opportunities for evangelism. We prayerfully pray to God for the spirit-empowered boldness to share the hope that we have in Christ. We prayerfully pray to God to prepare the hearts of the people He's placing in our life to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We prayerfully depend on God for spiritual growth in our lives and in the lives of others and for spiritual protection against the enemies that would want to counteract that spiritual growth and leave us in a place of spiritual immaturity and frailty in our faith. We pray those prayers. Prayer is one of the greatest ways to exalt God as we come before Him, whether individually or corporately, whether the church gathered or the church scattered, when we come together and pray words of adoration and words of confession and words of thanksgiving and words of supplication. That becomes one of the greatest acts of exaltation to God that we can engage in both individually and corporately. And so on that note, would you bow your heads with me? And I'll close this in prayer.